I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. The criminal justice system in Canada is facing an existential crisis. Press reports tell us there are a lot of people seemingly saying it's too lenient and not doing enough to keep people safe. The debate then gets into drugs, whether they should be criminalized further despite uh, the decriminalization we've seen. Then uh, there's whether harm reduction is the way to go or treatment and forced if need be. Uh, and uh, there's the ongoing debate as to whether we need more cops or if we should defund the police altogether. A new book takes the system on. Indictment, the criminal justice system on trial, has first-hand interviews with survivors, people who have committed offenses, prosecutors, defense lawyers, corrections officers, public health experts, victims' rights advocates, criminologists, trauma experts, psychologists, as well as victims of crime, all offering their stories and solutions. Benjamin Perrin, the book's author, joins me now. I'll ask him about the captivating and moving, sometimes harrowing stories he's gathered and the case he makes for a new vision of transformative justice. Uh, There are new ideas as well as old ones that just might work, that might solve the toxic drug crisis and alleviate the homelessness, poverty, and trauma around us. It's a compelling case that Mr. Perrin makes as he dismantles a lot of the colonial settler thinking that's inherent in the justice system. And it's convincing what he offers up as solutions in creating a new justice system from scratch. Benjamin Perrin is a professor at uh, the Peter A. Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. He has served in the Prime Minister's Office as in-house legal counsel and lead policy advisor on criminal justice and public safety. He was also a law clerk at the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. His last book, which he was on the program with in 2020, was Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. This uh, new book is published by... Avivo, is that how you pronounce it? It's Avo, yeah, Avo. It's University of Toronto Press, yeah. Uh, which is an imprint of uh, University of Toronto Press. Visit benjaminperrin.ca for more, including a podcast. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Benjamin Perrin. Professor Perrin, good morning. Thanks so much for having me back. Thanks for joining us. Um, I should have asked you before we started how to pronounce uh, your publisher. Um, it, it's such a moving book. It, I was going to say I enjoyed reading it, but it's tough to enjoy in, in a lot of parts. Um, this, our justice system is facing this existential crisis, and, and it has been for a while now. Has it always been this bad? Has the public always felt this way towards it? Well, things have been getting worse. I think people have a sense it's been getting worse, but the data backs that up. So, you know, we have rising crime rates. That's that's clear. We also see over the last uh, decade or so a dramatic increase in the proportion of Indigenous and Black people who are being incarcerated. So, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada called this a crisis almost a quarter century ago. Uh, I don't even know what they would call it now. We're up to 32% of federally incarcerated inmates are Indigenous. When we look at, at female incarcerated federal inmates, it's 50% Indigenous. And then when you look at the provinces and territories, places like Saskatchewan and Manitoba, we're, we're looking at 70 to 80% of provincial jails full of Indigenous people. Um, another metric, victims of crime. Uh, this is shocking stuff. Only a third of criminal offenses get reported to authorities. And when we look at sexual offenses, it's only like 1 in 20. So when I look at that, I say, look, people who, who experience criminal victimization have given up on the system. It's not, it does not offer them what they need. And so uh, rising drug deaths, we see you know, police being expected and asked and demanded to come in to deal with things like homeless encampments. Um, we, we are at a point where no one, no one thinks the criminal justice system is working. And we're faced with these two options. One is to go back to a tough-on-crime approach, you know, more police, more prisons, harsher sentences, or tinker with the status quo. And 
honestly, neither of those is going to work. And that's where I, I hope to, you know, have a new conversation about what are some better approaches we could take. So you take down the, the, the current justice system, not just take it down, but sort of uh, uh, dismantle it and then come up with a new system. However, when you listen to the popular press, these are not the, the statistics that you've just given us are not the things that the press talks about usually. It's about this revolving uh, door of justice that we've been hearing as of late, um, that there should be more judges because the courts are backlogged. These, these seem not to be the concerns of, of the public or the politicians. The, the core problem that we have is when crime occurs, we want it stopped, right? We don't want to see someone continue to commit sexual offenses or break into vehicles or kill people. Like, we want these things to stop. And the the focus of the criminal justice system right now is not about preventing reoffending. It's actually about punishment. The main goal is to punish people. If we shift and I say, what's our purpose? Like, what do we want as a society? I would like to see people safer. I'd like communities safer. And what the research shows is that more police does not reduce crime. That's very clear. We give stats from the book and examples from the United States, United Kingdom. We know that prison increases recidivism. When someone goes into a traditional prison or jail, they're, uh, they, they, if they had a job, they've lost it. Most people are unemployed when they get arrested. If they were in a recovery program, they're out of that. If they're being followed by mental health, even being arrested can have them kicked out of those programs. And then they've got a criminal record if they're convicted. And these things spiral. And, and what you see as you read indictment is that you see the spiral. And we don't see that in the daily headlines. We just hear, oh, today this happened. I want to know the backstory. You know, some of my favorite movies are about how did this begin? And so when we track back and look at where does harm start, it starts in early childhood. So someone who is the victim of childhood abuse, like sexual, physical, emotional abuse in the home, experiences that or witnesses family violence, they are 50% more likely to harm others later in life. They're also eight times more likely to be victims later. So if we're serious about addressing harm, we obviously need to deal with the people today who are harming others. And I talk about that in the book, but we need to go back to basics and say, like, what's the goal here? Do we just want to punish more people for the sake of punishment and vengeance? Or do we want to have a safer society? And everything flows from those, those initial questions. Well, we'll talk about trauma in just a sec, but it, it, it also um, begs the question whether there's enough literacy in not just the media, but sort of in, in the public discourse about what the justice system ought to do. And a lot of people think that that um, it, it should be a you know a, a refuge for revenge, if you will, or, or that, that we should seek revenge from the justice system. Um, do you find that that uh, people know what the hell they're talking about when it comes to what the justice system should do? I think most people want to feel safe, and I think they don't feel safe for a couple of reasons. One is because we do see rising crime uh, crime rates, but the other reason is people feel uncomfortable, and there's a difference between feeling uncomfortable and feeling unsafe. So, for example, if you know, uh, someone is sleeping in a tent at our, at our community park, which has happened in our, our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That's something that may feel, make you feel uncomfortable, but you're actually not unsafe just because of that. Right. And so same thing with, with visible homelessness and poverty. We know that, that makes people feel unsafe, but it doesn't necessarily mean they are any less safe. In fact, you know, the people who you think about really heinous crimes like sexual offenses, most of the, uh, offenders are, are known to the victims, right? These are people who are, um, in the in their lives, who are the you know um, basketball coaches? We had another case of that in the news this week. Uh, it's not the the visible signs that you see in the community. So I think that you know we need to start looking at these these issues in our communities, whether it's substance use, mental health issues, homelessness, and say, is an armed police response the best way to address those or not? Because if it's not, we're going to spend a lot of money making those problems worse. 
And, and so at the, throughout the book, you, there's a lot of trauma, as I said a moment ago, um, and uh, that seems to be one of those root causes that I think ought to be addressed, and, and I don't think we as a culture or as a legal system do enough to address that. Um, you talked about a trauma-informed approach when it comes to, to uh, the justice system. What would change day-to-day, say, if, if, if more people, not just on the front lines, but, but in, in the courts themselves, would 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 take that approach, say, in, in the way they conduct themselves? Well, I'll give you a really good example of something really concrete. So someone who appears as a witness in a trial, whether they're the complainant in the case, the accused, or or a third party who who is part of the, the, the system, criminal case, family law case, civil law case for that matter, juries are told and judges are told when we're assessing their demeanor, how they're appearing to use your common sense. So for example, if someone is claiming that they were a victim of a, a, of a brutal assault, but they don't show any emotion. They have a very flat emotion. They're just describing it almost like robotically. Mm-hmm. Most people are going to think that person's making it up or lying because they think, hey, if that happened to me, I would be crying maybe. I'd be emotional. I certainly wouldn't be like a stoic person. Yeah. And yet what we know about trauma, and if you were trauma-informed, you'd know, is that's something called dissociation. Mm-hmm. So that kind of flat effect, that numbing face. So in addition to writing this book, Indictment, I've, I've co-written an article that's coming out in the Canadian Bar Review in a few months, actually, on this issue of how we are getting it wrong and we risk getting it wrong in terms of even things like, is there a wrongful conviction that flows because of this sort of stuff? So we need to be trauma-informed, not only because it's the right and compassionate thing to do, but we are going to consistently get it wrong if we don't. One of the things I, I, I unfortunately didn't know much about was this, this Canadian uh, Bill of Victims' Rights. Is that the pronounce it? Um, uh, and uh, it, it's rather specific as to, to what, how, say, the, just because you brought up the, the courtroom example, um, how uh, victims should be treated in that, uh, in, in that uh, arena. Um, if, a, if, if an accused is representing themselves, for example, um, do they have the, um, the opportunity or the right even to, to cross-examine the, the victim? They can try to, and there's a special provision in the criminal code that um, that can allow for the judge to appoint a lawyer to do that instead. I and see. so that's an example, though, of, of one of the many ways that, and reasons why victims are not interested in being involved. Like if something... Don't even report things. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Because, and the research is really clear from victims what they want. They actually don't, uh, by and large, want, some of them do, no, no doubt, but by and large, they don't actually want harsher punishments. Politicians argue for that in, in the name of the victim, and people maybe assume that that's what they want, lock them up, throw away the key, but in fact what they want is information. They want to know what's going on, they want to participate, they want to be involved in the process, and they want some sort of meaningful amends to happen. And that happens not in our criminal justice system right now. Victims are considered like an interloper. They're not a party uh, to the proceedings and their rights are routinely infringed, as we found through our research and speaking with victims. So you have a right to a victim impact statement, but whether it gets recognized, seen, or heard is a totally different question. Yeah, there's an example in the book about how uh, one victim's impact statement was lost a couple of times, and, and she, she, she didn't even know that the date for the, uh, the, the, the accused trial was that day, and so she missed it. Exactly. Um, yeah. The other thing, when I when I brought up the, the Bill of Rights a moment ago, the, the Victim's Bill of Rights, um, it, it really is dependent on the judges themselves to, as to how well they, say, infor- enforce that in their courtrooms, right? And so, so we're really, as, as, as a society, we're, we're beholden to, um, I guess, the judges' uh, own behavior, I suppose, right? These are rights without remedies, right? Mm-hmm. So the question is, are they rights at all? And, and so there's a great deal of concern about that fact, one of the 
one of the most alarming things I heard, and I, there's a lot of alarming things I heard while doing this research, yeah. was when they first started asking victims of crime about their experiences with the system, these are victimologists, they found that victims were even less satisfied with their experience with the criminal justice system than people who had committed offenses and were being put on trial. Like, think about that for a second. Yeah. The, the victims saying that they had a worse time and they're less satisfied than the people who are like, ending up in prison through the system who said, yeah, it wasn't as bad, you know, that bad. <laughs> so that tells us the horrible disconnect. And so my work in, in criminal justice has has been consistently as a victim advocate, and I continue to be concerned about victims of crime. And what what I do in indictment is, I think, first of all, demonstrate that the world is not so black and white. I used to think, you know, there's the good guys and the bad guys, sure. but it turns out virtually everyone who, who uh, commits violent uh, criminal offenses, we're talking, you know, upwards of 90%, were themselves first victims. Now, this doesn't excuse their behavior. No one's saying that. But if we're serious about understanding why it happened and what we can do to prevent it, we need to go back to those those roots of trauma. And then when you put someone in prison who has a trauma history and expect them to get better in, in, a, in what is a very coercive and violent environment, they don't get better. They, mm. get, they get worse. And so you talk about revolving door. That's what happens when you, when you, you say the answer is just to lock people up for longer they are all eventually going to get out except for a very fractional number of people. So what kind of a neighbor do we want to have? Do you want someone who is in a prison which had harsh conditions where they were left alone and in times when they weren't alone, they're worried about getting shanked and at night that's they're sharpening their tools to defend themselves? Or we can take a different approach and focus on when people do need to be separated from society that they would get come out better and not worse. So law enforcement seems to be the solution that we all turn to. If there's a problem in their front yard or something, we call the cops. Um, you talk to a number of people in the book who say that um, uh, they have uh, lost confidence in, in, in law enforcement, especially in the police. But uh, it, it um, seems that, that we, we turn to law enforcement when it's really a health care problem. There's a great quote in the book that when the health care system fails to treat mental illness, the criminal justice, justice system punishes the symptoms. That's from, I guess, a John Howard report. Um, so I can see how a trauma-informed approach would probably uh, be beneficial to, to those on the front line, say. Um, what place uh, moving forward in, in this new system that, that, that um, you seem to create at the, at the end of the book, would, would those people who are in law enforcement that are in corrections, what, what part do they have to play? Well, when we talk about alternatives to the status quo, um, Policing is a great example that you brought up. We know that two-thirds of people who die in encounters with police were experiencing a mental health distress episode or, or a substance use issue. Two-thirds. And so this is not the right response. Like people who are, are coming, who are trained in use of force primarily and have a, a use of force protocol, we did the research and dug into this. So we actually pulled the use of, use of force protocols that police across Canada trained on. It's a standard, standard pr- protocol. And I interviewed the head of uh, forensic psychiatry at the Canadian Association for Mental Health, uh, Dr. Sandy Simpson. And what he explained was, when you look at a use of force protocol that police are trained on, which starts with them using like a verbal command to tell you to, you know, to, to you know, put your hands out of your pockets or whatever their command is, and you don't do it, they are trained to now move that up to escalate to something which is called soft contact, you know, putting their hands on you. Then if you resist that, hard contact, intermediate weapons like like tasers and batons, all the way up to use of force. Mm-hmm. So this is how these situations spiral out of control. And what Dr. Dr. Simpson explains is that a typical person, like like myself, for example, or, or you, if you see you know three or four police officers with their big kit in their, their arms and they say, get on the ground right now, 
we might be stunned for a second, but we're going to comply. Sure. We're yeah. going to. I mean, uh, you're in too. Yeah. Okay. We're going to comply. <laughs> well, someone who's experiencing, for example, a psychotic episode, or who has unresolved trauma and was, you know, beaten every day of their life practically as a child, there it's going to have the opposite effect. Yeah. Rather than compliance, it's going to lead to a fight or flight response, and a fight response or a flight response is non-compliance. Yeah. And so. It's also not just um, people who have mental health issues, but it's also disabled people. I talk about uh, people who have um, autism uh, spectrum mm-hmm. disorder, a young indigenous man walking, minding his own business, you know, walking down some train tracks and ends up horribly beaten by police, um, was doing nothing wrong. And it was all because he was deemed to be non-compliant. And so the, the, the folks in our society who are, who are being most significantly harmed by our approach to policing are the people who the police regularly interact with. And so that's why one of the things I propose as part of a new transformative justice vision is 24-7 non-police crisis response teams. And these are working in other parts of the world really well. We don't have them across the board in Canada at all. When we call 911, it's Mm -hmm. police, fire, and ambulance. If you gave an option of a crisis worker, I bet you people would choose that option. And I also bet you, getting back to your question about police, I bet you most police officers would rather have someone who's a trained medic or a peer or civilian to go up to that tent or go up to that person who's just, you know, yelling and throwing things at the middle of the street at two in the morning. I bet you most police at this point don't want to go up there when they've got their, their kit on them and that's all the tools they really have. Indeed. Now, um, uh, accountability in terms of say interactions that have gone wrong. Um, as you write in the book, cops are rarely charged or disciplined for, for, um, interactions that that, that um, go badly um, w- within this current justice system that we have do you, th- do you think more could be done in that regard in terms of say uh, holding the police to account so there's two kind of approaches here one is we can try to make the status quo better kind of tinkering at the margins and that's what I would say 99% or 99.9% of the conversations about I'm trying to have a different conversation and saying well, how could we do things very differently and we don't have to People don't have to agree with the approaches I'm talking about, but I think it's pretty clear after at least two to three decades now of a fairly intensive focus by uh, Parliament, the Supreme Court of Canada, different provincial governments, and and police agencies as well, to try to do things like de-escalation training, to try to try to do things like recruiting more Indigenous people to serve in the justice system, things like uh, policies that are designed to give you know greater cultural competency. These things haven't haven't moved the needle at all, and so. That's where I say we actually need to have different institutions, different different things that we will turn to instead of our default, which is, you know, really like a Victorian England style mm. of, you know, policing around the margins of, of poverty and, and homelessness and people who are not like us. So, you know, racial profiling is another one. We haven't, you know, covered that a, a lot. It's not something that I've experienced as a white person when I've gotten pulled over for for example, for speeding, the police have given me a warning and warned me about moose on the highway. That actually happened to mm-hmm. me. Whereas when I interviewed uh, Julius Hogg, who's a professor at U of T, who researches this stuff, he's been he's been profiled. He gets he gets carded all the time. Yeah. And um, and and it's in a common it's not an unusual. It's a common experience of black people in Toronto and Indigenous people and black people throughout the country. Yeah, you give the example in the book of, of Desmond Cole, who, who's, who's spoken out about that. He's written, written a book about that as well. Um, and uh, the, the talk that, that um, people should be, that, that, that parents give their children, you know, that, that, that um, uh, you as a white guy, me as, as whose parents are Filipino, I uh, fortunately have not had that talk, you know, from, from my parents as to, to how to 
<laughs> what to do in, in, in a situation when you're confronted like that. Yeah. Um, there's a great deal of privilege that you also unpack in the book like that, um, that I think is important to, to, to point out. Um, because it seems as, as you were writing this book, not just this book, but the previous one, um, that there's a lot of personal growth mm. that you felt as you were writing these books. Um, I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but but did you find that um, in order to, to say grow as a person, you needed to think about these things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I think you're absolutely right. It was a it was an incredibly difficult uh, experience and transformative for me to hear people's stories. I mean, this this book for me started with receiving a letter actually from an indigenous man who was being incarcerated and he didn't ask me for anything. He just wanted to share a story mm. and it, his letter was haunting. I mean, I, it's burned in my mind. One of the lines, he said, if you want to turn a man into an animal, put him in a cage without the resources to build him back up. And that was, you know, his, his letter. And then this question from the federal Ju- justice department back in you know five years ago was if you could design a new system from scratch, what would it look like? So that's when I came to meet people like uh, Harold Johnson, who said, you can't design any solutions without talking to people who are impacted. So we literally put out posters across the country asking people, both uh, people who are survivors of crime and people who've committed offenses, what was your experience like with the system? And, and, and listening to their stories was, was totally life-changing for me. And that's why I wanted to let them speak for themselves on the podcast and in the book to try to do the best I could to, to recount their stories in, in, in writing as well. Because that, for me, was huge. This is not all about just changing our minds. We mm-hmm. actually have to have a softer heart. Yeah. So, because um, I interview people, um, I, I was curious to know how you uh, got people to share their stories. I mean, does it take a lot of coaxing, say, on your part to, to get these stories? I mean, they're, they're awfully personal. They're, they're, they're often, as I said earlier, often harrowing stories that you're able to uh, present in the book and on the on the podcast. Um, what was it like to talk to these people and, and, and get them to tell their, their experiences? I would say I was really surprised at how how much everyone wanted to share their story. No one had asked them, and and they by and large almost everyone I spoke to, whether they were coming to me as someone who had recently been a victim of a crime or recently you know come out of prison. A lot of folks in that category. They they said if I can if telling you my story can help one person, I'm in. So they had this goal of actually it was both kind of therapeutic really like to f- share their own story, but then also to help someone like that was pretty incredible. And I I just tried to make make people feel comfortable like I I really just said to them like I'm here to listen and learn and 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 people shared and you know you can imagine you know. You know, if people you know go and look me up and say, "Oh, this guy, hang on a second, this guy used to work for the federal conservatives. Like, why is he doing this, or what's what's going to come out of this?" And and I'm really um, grateful, both in my last book, Overdose, and in this book, Indictment, that people were willing to share their stories with me. And I went into it with an with an open mind. And both books, I really did. That's yeah. what you're supposed to do as a researcher, right? Yeah. Um, and and I I want people to approach this subject and this book with that too. We know what we're doing isn't working. Come into it with an open mind. Listen to what people are really saying are impacted. Because, as you know, we often hear the definition of of privilege is thinking something's not an issue because it doesn't affect you, right? right. And but there are people whose voices are not heard, and I think that's why they wanted to talk. No one had bothered to ask them before. It's such a gift to to, to read these stories or listen to them on the podcast. Um, and, and I understand that they also affected you personally, didn't they? I mean, there, there were some sleepless nights. There were some tears, weren't there? 
Yeah, it was really early on. It started hitting me. I I made the mistake of of, of scheduling these uh, these interviews uh, three or four per day, and mm. I, I had them packed into like a couple of days a week. So at one point, I had nine or ten mm. of these interviews scheduled. We had seventy in total. Half were with people with lived experience. The other half were with people who work in and around the system. And um, after the first first or second day, I started having nightmares, mm. and I woke up and. I believed that I was the one in the solitary confinement cell with my my wrists slit open, bleeding out, because that was a story I had just heard. And what was so traumatic about what I would hear is the I would say that the injustices that you hear about from folks in the system they compound. It's not like one thing. It's it's that their lives have been this endless system of failures. Whether it was the child welfare system the youth criminal justice system, the adult criminal justice system, the healthcare system, hundreds of times that a different approach could have been taken. But I, I want people to also have a sense of hope uh, for a couple of reasons is that people's stories don't all end mm. so in, 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 in death or in misery or destruction. Many of the people I spoke to have gone through an incredible transformation themselves and are now helping others. I, I can't even tell you how many people, for example, went through these experiences and are now, for example, like clinical counselors who are now going into prisons or who are working at, you know, women's shelters. They want to share what they've learned. And there's something about trauma, which is you can heal from trauma. It's not a life sentence. Uh, there's even something called post-traumatic growth. People who report having even better lives than they had ever thought they could have had or even better lives than they had before the trauma happened to them. So that gives me a lot of hope. And the other thing is that this isn't all up to government. Yes, government policies need to change at the federal, provincial, and municipal level, but many of the initiatives that I profile in a new transformative justice vision started out by communities taking action on their own. Things like the non-police crisis response teams. Yeah, they should have support and get integrated in 911, but in the meantime, we see local nonprofits launching their own teams and building support through that that kind of approach. So it's it's not the end of the story. We're we're in the middle of this story, yeah. and uh, we have an opportunity to do things differently. And and Harold uh, Johnson, um, a remarkable person who, uh, unfortunately, I never had the the, the chance to interview. Um, you got to know him, and and he tells you quite bluntly, and he, I guess this was in one of your classes or one of the lectures that he gave. Um, the people do have to give a shit, don't they? Yeah. I mean, and 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 um, that's one of the things that. I've come away from the book is, is thinking about um, that more of us have to do more. Yeah, I think we all have an obligation. We're, our justice system is done in our name. Mm-hmm. It's with our tax dollars, and we're making decisions of you know who to vote for based on whether we're going to continue to let our fear win or insist on a new approach. And so I have some hope because... You do have cities like here in Vancouver where you know we we went the we went the wrong way on on, a, on this issue for sure, hiring 100 new police officers, shooting our property taxes up when there's no evidence that's actually going to make us any safer. Not everyone's buying that though. So if you look at Toronto and Chicago, they both had tough on crime candidates pitted against people who said no, we've got to address the causes. Like we need to address community safety in in much more comprehensive ways than just more police officers. Mm-hmm. Policing is reactive; it's after the fact, right? And so. They um, those those candidates lost, including one who was a former chief of police and promised another one who promised 500 new police officers. Yeah. So, you know, we've got a, an opportunity, I think, to 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 chart a different path. And I'm hopeful that as more people, you know, open up their hearts to to this and and get quite frankly frustrated and done. The other approach, by the way, is we just go the full tough on crime route, like right. some Republican states did. And then you had Republican governors saying, 
whoa, this isn't working. And with their taxes shooting up and their jails full, realizing that that, that does not work. So we know where that road leads, and uh, we do not need to go down it. So we're at a moment here in, in our politics, because unfortunately politics does play a part in all of this, because people do elect other people to make these decisions, where um, a different approach could be um, uh, coming down the pike, say federally even, or even provincially. Um what do you make of, of where we're headed, say, politically, and, and what this could mean to our justice system? Well, I think if we're if we're going to make criminal justice policy based on politics, we are going to see more harm in our communities, and it's going to cost us all more tax dollars. So those are both bad outcomes, right? So I'm I hope that people who are who are minded to be you know tough on crime to win votes, or that's just their ideology, that this will give them a real pause. And and I also hope you know coming from someone who used to be in that mentality, mm-hmm. um, that it will mean something more, that, that people will take a second look at this. Um, and the flip side is that there are policies that I think everyone can get behind in this book, I will say. I'll give you an example. The first part of a, a new transformative justice vision is on preventing kids from being physically, sexually, and emotionally abused. So mm-hmm. Canada should join what's called the 70-30 campaign. It's to, the goal is to reduce childhood maltreatment by 70% by 2030. How do you do that? There's very concrete programs that have been gone through like randomized controlled trials, things like providing a nurse into the family home from pregnancy to age two. When they go in there every you know few weeks and support that family through things like, you know, here's the impact that using substances can have on your unborn child. Um, here are some programs that we can help you with getting, you know, employment or, or, or benefits and support. Um, here's how you discipline your kid, you know, because it's different than how maybe you were treated as a parent. If you were a child and you were, you know, hit, that's how you're going to possibly parent, right? And so when they track those kids, and the program ends at age two, mm-hmm. they, they, they go follow up with them when they're 15, and they found that the the experiences of childhood abuse those kids had was, was almost 80% less. And this is a randomized controlled trial. They're comparing them to peers in the community yeah. who were not in the program. And they found that there was something like 60% less arrests of those children now as, as youth and 81% less convictions. So you have this double benefit. These kids were protected, they didn't experience that victimization, and they were l- way less likely to harm others. So if that's not something we can't all get behind, I don't, I don't know what it is. And, and you do provide a lot of solutions in the book. Now, wh- one of the issues that you're probably going to come up against is, is people who say, well, that's not how we've done things before. You sure. get this recalcitrance from, from people who say, well, um, we're not used to that. And then some people bring up the money fact that, that th- these things have cost money that, that we scarcely have. Um how do you go up against these people who are, are utterly convinced that uh, something new is not the way to go? Well, some people can't be convinced, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think I believe some people can. That's why we. That's why we're having these interviews, doing podcasts, talking to people, writing books. Some people can be. Can't, you can't change your minds. You can grow. And on the money piece, I hit that head on. These programs that I talk about are caught, not only cost saving; they cost generate. Mm. So the nurse family partnership I was describing a minute ago. The Washington Institute for Public Policy found it generated a net savings of $18,000 per family participating. And the Rand Corporation found for every um, dollar you invest in that program, you you save $2.88. And we could go through all the other programs that restorative justice, for example, lower recidivism at a fraction of the price, indigenous policing, indigenous-led corrections, all get better outcomes, um, again, without the funding. They should be properly funded. So in terms of money, if you're interested in money, I'm actually doing a talk at the Fraser Institute on that very question. Are we getting good value for our public safety money? And Mm -hmm. I think that's a great conversation that's not happening right now. 
And the system doesn't do very well when yeah. you start checking out how well it does on a dollar-for-dollar dollar basis against these alternatives. Yeah, there's a figure in the book, $116,000 to, to, to house, say, someone in the correction system. Um, per year, it, and yeah. you know, it gets up to the millions when you look at someone over the life course. Right. So when you talk about, like, revolving door in and out, because that's because the system is, you know, usually making things worse, or you say just keep them in there. We're, I say get out your checkbook, right? right. Um, and then that person is eventually going to get out and cause more harm. So, again, if we want to, you know, make people safer, reduce harm in our society, save money in the process, we need to look at alternatives. So, yeah, look, our our justice system, go back to your last question, you also said, well, what if we say people have always done this way? Well, we don't say that in the medical system. You know, mm-hmm. uh, We discovered something called anesthesia that can help you to have surgery without being wide awake for it. You know, Our criminal justice system was created in the 1800s. You want to go back to you know, biting down on a piece of wood while they you know, amputate part of your body? That's how we used to do things there. Right. The medical professions changed, the education systems changed, but the criminal justice system, by and large, has not changed in the last 200 years. You mentioned Jesus Christ in the book, and, and uh, um, you, you talk about um, how more Christians um, should be more supportive of a new vision for criminal justice. Christ himself was, was wrongfully accused and put to death. Um, I, I, we spoke a moment ago about your own, your own personal journey. Um, why do you think it is that Christians heretofore have been reticent to say look at a new way of justice especially with with um what you propose in the book it makes eminent sense i mean i'm nominally a catholic um uh, a non-practicing one at that 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 that, um i just don't see many people of 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 my ilk or or christians in general um say subscribe to some of the ideas that you that you propose in the book yeah it's a really good point um there are many different perspectives that that Christians have on justice issues. So we do have on the far extreme, we'd have like the evangelical right in the U S and in in part here in Canada, which is very much on the tough on crime approach. Mm -hmm. But we also have people who are, for example, and I quote, quote, um, an African American, uh, brother in Christ in the book, who's written a book on abolishing traditional prisons. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you do have a quite, uh, quite a range. You also have, for example, the United, United Church is very s- strong supporters, at least many of the churches I've spoken to, of things like harm reduction. So just to put that on the table, there's there's a range out there. Yeah. Um, but certainly the, 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 the sort of intersection between um, Christians and criminal justice generally in Canada, as I witnessed it in, yeah. in the Conservative Party and the Reform Party before that, was very much supportive of a more tough and hard approach on offenders. And I believe that too. Um, what changed for me is I really started to begin to very deeply look at my faith and what I really believed about five years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I began to see myself differently. And, you know, speaking as a Christian to other Christians, I say to them, like, I, ch- I you know, let's have a loving conversation. I challenge you, though, do you think you're any better than someone who commits a murder or a sexual offense? Do you think you're any better? God says you're not. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you, is there part of you that thinks you are? Because you're not. And so I don't see myself as any better or worse. We all have harmed others and had wrongs done to us. And so if we're going to have a hard heart towards people, we're not listening to what Jesus said. His direct quote, right, from Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. He also says, if you have a conflict between your brother, you know, go leave, leave church, leave the, leave, the, leave the synagogue, go leave the altar and go and make things right. So we see strongly a call for forgiving each other, for reconciling with each other, for mercy, 
these do not fit well with a tough on crime approach. They are quite opposite to it. And so as I was starting to think about this and going, am I off on my own on this? Well, there were a few things that I began to realize. There is a incredibly strong um, movement, if we look over the last several hundred years, of people who their faith, their Christian faith, was driving a more, what I would describe as a more humanitarian type approach. So people have heard of the John Howard Society, mm-hmm. quoted the report a minute ago, John Howard was a, was a Christian, and it was his Christian faith that was motivating him to uh, bring forward the, the cruelty of the British prison system. Uh, likewise, Elizabeth Fry, mm-hmm. right? William Booth, who created the Salvation Army. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., okay, who spoke out about the racial inequalities and injustices against African-American people, did so from a, a, a belief that all people are created by God and are deeply loved by him and deserving of, of, uh, of being treated in that way. Now, that's, that's my own faith perspective. Mm-hmm. I bring it up because of the fact that so much of the support for the Tough on Crime agenda has come from um, the uh, social conservative uh, sort of part of the conservative mm-hmm. party. That's a big part of it. And so I want to talk to those those folks, some of whom I know really well, yeah. and say, I want to challenge you because does your faith, your personal beliefs about people and about forgiveness and reconciliation and second chances line up with that? Now, we also need to be safe, right? And so uh, I recognize that, and, and that's why we have better ways to keep us safe talked about in the book. But I, I do think it's good to talk about You don't often hear people speaking about um, about their faith in yeah. the context of these issues. Are some of your conservative friends from before, are they still talking to you? Yeah, there's a few of them, sure. Yeah, yeah. Not many, but a few, yeah. The, 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 the folks who I find it interesting because, like, I've always had friends on all mm-hmm. sides of the political spectrum. Right. So, you know, if, if you're not able to kind of move past that, then it's, you know, you're, you're, you're really a partisan, and that's your whole life, and, you know, fair enough. But I never got involved in politics uh, to be a, a partisan. I got involved because I was interested in policy. Yeah. And growing up in Calgary, um, you know, uh, I was, you know, from a fairly, like, conservative, you know, family and all that stuff, and it was, you know, pretty easy and obvious for me. And there were things that I agreed with at the time, a lot of things I agreed with at the time in the first reform party and then, yeah. the, you know, a lot alliance and the federal conservatives, but I'm not politically uh, involved this year in the sense this time in my life, the last 10 years, actually, I'm not a member of any political party, but I'm very keen on trying to use whatever voice I have to try to argue and work with anyone uh, for a more compassionate evidence-based approach to criminal justice policy. I read at the, at the front of the book that the royalties of this book indictment will go to two organizations. Would, would you tell us about the, is it straight up? Yeah, that's and the uh, collaborative justice program. Yeah, it was really important to me in writing this book that I not be that I not uh, profit off it and I not be seen to be profiting off of it because it's you know it's telling the stories of other people. It's a it's a one eighty on what I used to support, and I mm. didn't want people to just say, "Oh, he's just saying this to make a quick buck." Like I just didn't want that. I want the message to be what gets out. So, um, and and to be able to support two really incredible organizations at the same time is a win 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 from my perspective. So yeah, all the author royalties go to those two organizations. I talk about both of them in the book. Yeah. Uh, Straight up is a organization nonprofit in Saskatchewan that works with helping people, uh, predominantly Indigenous people, exit street gangs and actually move on and have a better life and be 
um, good parents, good partners, and good members of the community, and dropping their gang ties and getting off their substances, and it's it's an incredible. And uh, I forget story. the name of the guy from Straight Up that you that you feature in the book. He's just a, a wonderful character. Yeah, you talking about Andre Polio? Yeah, he yeah, just yeah. he just he, he, the, the way he talks comes alive in the book, and and I'm sure do we hear him on the podcast as well? I'm hoping so. Yeah, yeah. we've we've got um we've got five episodes out and more to come, and he's one of the people I'd like to be able to to profile in there. Um, yeah, he interesting as well. He was a Catholic mm-hmm. priest who who gave up his his collar, I think the term was, because of his concern that the in his view the Catholic Church was not taking enough actions to provide accountability or restoration for uh, survivors of the residential school mm. uh, system. And so he he doesn't hold any punches. And he's when I spoke to him, he's he's in a, I think he's in an a old folks home now, mm-hmm. but he is still going strong and. And their organization, I spoke to many of their members and interviewed them about their life-changing stories. And it, it just shows what can happen when you had someone to mentor you and walk alongside you and people change. It, 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 is, it is possible mm-hmm. and communities get better. And it's not just that person. It's their children, their family, their community. It has its ripple effect. Um, the other one is collaborative justice. Yeah, is that based in Ottawa? Yeah, they're based in Ottawa. They're really unique because they're one of the only restorative justice programs in the country that deals with violent offenses. Mm. So most people are pretty comfortable with like, oh, someone breaks your sure. you know, window, like, yeah, okay, do it. But this is for someone who like permanently disfigured you from an assault at a bar. You know, that's one of the cases in the book. And they, you know, it's incredible. They, they've had independent evaluations. They have higher levels of victim satisfaction. They have lower recidivism, less reoffending from the people who are offenders who go through the program, but they're chronically underfunded. It's the same story. All these programs, same story. And um, so, yeah, people who buy the book, part of your part of what you spent on the book will go to help that organization hopefully raise their profile a bit too. As I said earlier on, the the, the book is often harrowing hearing these stories, and then I, I t- tuned into to some of the episodes of the podcast and getting to hear the, their voices of some of the people that I've read in the book is just incredible as well. Um, but at the same time, the, the book does end, I guess, on a hopeful note. I mean, you remain hopeful, don't you? Yeah, I do. And it's because I've seen the changes and I have talked to people who have not given up. They haven't given up after they were abused. They haven't given up after they were incarcerated or mistreated by the system. And they have moved on with new and better lives. And I've seen that. And that's why it's called transformative justice. The goal that I have for our society really is that we would be able to transform the trauma that people have experienced rather than continue to transmit it and breaking these cycles of violence and harm. And it's something I've seen enough times to know that we can expect better and we should do better than what we're offering people right now, which is just more more punishment, more of the same old costly, ineffective and deadly tough on crime type policies. This status quo that's just kind of tinkering with it, uh, you know, it's, it's not it's not working. And it's not going to work. And so I hope we'll have a, a broader conversation like we're having today about new and better approaches. And if hey, if they're not the ones that I identified in the book that's Mm -hmm. fine that's fine with me like let's let's get some ideas on the table and start this debate because it it hasn't happened yet and it really needs to so we're talking here on on september 25th and there have been five episodes of the podcast how many episodes do you think this will run well we're looking at at least 10 or 12 Mm -hmm. at this point um if it really took off i maybe would keep going with it but um you know it just depends if we get we've already had a thousand people in the first 10 days sign up which i mean if you remember back to the early days of your your podcast it's hard to get an initial base it it takes time and so i'm i'm hopeful you know there's some people who won't read the book 
who will just listen to the podcast, yeah. they'll get something out of it. And then I'm really glad to hear, like, as someone who's read the book, the podcast adds a lot, right? I mean, it's a different thing to hear the stories. It's, 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 sometimes it's tough to hear uh, a person's own voice telling you the story that you've read. You, you, you've read the story and you've been moved by it or horrified by it. But then when you hear, the, hear it in their own voice, um, it's, it's chilling almost, you know? And, and I think that's the reason why I think the book um, it, it will work the way that I think it should, is that, that we're listening to people that we need to listen to. Yeah, and we don't hear their voices normally. Yeah. Like, I don't, I've never heard from any of these folks in any of the 20 years that I've been involved in, in and around the criminal justice system, you know, at all the uh, events that I'm at, at, whether it's academic conferences or um, cabinet meetings, you know, we don't hear from these people. Who are, who are the ones directly impacted by the system. They are the real experts in the criminal justice system. You, you know, and, and, and by understanding and listening to their stories, we gain a lot. And so it's it's not just hearing stories because if you heard one story and go, oh, that's a one-off. Sure. So that's why I bring in, like I said, the other half of the interviewees are people who work in and around the system, professionals and experts with the degrees, you know, and rather than lived experience, who are able to say, you know, this happened to this one person, but this is not an anomaly. This is actually part of a much broader problem yeah. to give the stats and the studies and the context. So I'm hopeful that between those two, you know, again, it's all about about having a softer heart and having an open mind, that that's how we can begin to change our approach to this. Uh, we've continued good luck with the book. I, I uh, uh, appreciate you coming in to do this. It's nice to, to talk to you and, and, and finally meet you, a neighbor, as it were. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much. The, the website for more is at benjaminperrin.ca. The book is called Indictment, The Criminal Justice System on Trial. AVO, UTP, is its publisher, uh, an imprint of uh, University of Toronto Press. Benjamin Perrin, its author, joined me in person here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plata.